If you're a senior executive looking to transition to boards, check out our Fast Start Guide to Board Success. In this short guide, we'll answer all of your questions about landing a paid board role and we'll share some of the rookie errors executives make when trying to climb the board ladder. Jump on our website, boardcoachinginstitute.com.au or click on the link in the show notes to access your free copy today. If you're looking for board success, let us show you how. Hello and welcome to Insider Insights, where you get to meet non-executive directors and go inside their boardroom. Today, we're joined by Michelle McLean, who will give us her unique perspective of board life and offer up some hints and tips to help you to succeed too. Michelle is a busy full-time non-executive director with roles with the CFA, the Country Fire Authority, and East Gippsland Water, as well as a handful of private entities. She sits on a total of 13 boards and committees, several of which she chairs. So join me now and let's hear from the very busy insider, Michelle McLean. Michelle, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to have you here. Pleasure. Now, you've um, had a lot of roles in your time. I'm looking through your resume as we speak. What, what roles are you currently serving? Uh, currently, I, have, I sit on the Country Fire Authority, uh, East Gippsland Water, uh, Frontier uh, SI, and I have a couple of consulting roles uh, as well that are board advisory roles. Now, one of the things I'd love to open with is we talk about how many roles can a person do and the answer seems to be as many as you can service. So if the, um, the, the world was to fall in and you were suddenly in crisis management in all of those boards, have you got the capacity to be fully present for all of them? And looking at your resume, being in East Gippsland with the Water Authority, um, being on the country fire authority, that we had the bushfires in Victoria late 2019, early 2020. How did some of that crisis management land on you? What was the impact for you during that time? Well, obviously, particularly for CFA, that was that was significant. So there was a number of emergency board meetings that were required to attend um, and getting briefings and being able to be across all of the the media that was being released and, and ensuring that we were doing absolutely everything that we possibly could do in that time. So, so yes, in a crisis, you do have to be able to make yourself available and, and have to be able to put, put aside anything else that you're doing. So that was a very intense time in January particularly. And that affected East Gippsland. Were you on the water board at that time? Uh, well, yes, I, I in fact had the double whammy so I had the CFA um, and then we also had East Gippsland Water so uh, yes so I sort of was in a situation where I was attending two lots of um, crisis meetings and not having East Gippsland Water wasn't as pressed um, as it was for CFA as you could imagine because CFA was at the coal phase but East yeah. Gippsland likewise still had staff that were impacted uh, just, you know, obviously water was being used. So there was a drain on the water reserves and things like that. So, yes, I did have, interestingly, um, both coming at me from both sides, which would be unusual, I've got to say. 
Yeah, until we had COVID and then every board was in crisis management at the yes, same time. Yes. So have That's you relived exactly that right. experience again when COVID came along? Um, I have to say it was, it was interesting in early March because I don't think that everybody, re- well, sorry, probably more February, I don't think people really took um, COVID very seriously at the start. And yes, we were working on doing, you know, COVID safe plans and things like that. But I think it really came very quickly in March when people started to say, okay, we need a plan. And it was interesting. My one risk meeting that I went to, we had a, a risk workshop in, I think it was in February for a board that I was on. It actually didn't even get a mention. So that's how under the radar it really was. And I don't think anybody really had the foresight to see how it was going to change the world as we knew it. That was yeah. yeah. That, that's really interesting. One of the things that I love most in governance is risk management. It's probably one of my favourite favourite things Same. about corporate governance. And the whole, you know, the what ifs, what if the sky falls in and what if the aliens land. And the idea of a good risk management strategy is to consider every possible situation and what would be the likelihood of it occurring and what would be the impact if it did. Now, the likelihood of a pandemic has been there for several years. Like if you ask any of the pharmaceutical companies or the health companies, pandemic's been on their radar for a few years. The consequence, it's it's the highest rating you can imagine. Like it couldn't have a bigger impact on businesses if it tried both economically Um, supply chain, health of the employees. It's such a massive impact. And yet it just wasn't there on so many risk registers. It just didn't appear before 2020. Yeah, I would agree with that. And also business continuity plans didn't, they were addressing earthquake, uh, you know, business interruption from a, in a physical sense, but nobody actually saw this, this sort of thing being so intrusive or disruptive to business. So you tend to have an event and it's, you know, you quickly mobilise your, your business continuity plan. You know, if you have an event and it's an earthquake, you get everybody set up on a diff- at a different site, different location. I don't think anybody realised how, um, how disruptive th- this pandemic would be. And yeah. I have to say the continuity plans I looked at really didn't cater for cater for a pandemic of this this nature. And that's one of the issues of of corporate governance, right? That you could spend hours planning every scenario. And I'm not just talking risk management, I'm talking uh, what if there's a dispute between the directors, what if the CEO is incompetent, a good risk management, a good corporate governance structure looks at all of those things and has policies and procedures for every eventuality. The reality is no board has all of those things in place, not until we actually get confronted with the situation do we actually put the policy in place to to allow. So you're very much working on the fly for for you then. The fires, what with COVID, rapid learning, um, I should imagine. Yes, and then I think, um, you know, we're potentially going to go into flood. They're talking about floods being the next thing, so that will be, yeah, that, that's that's going to be an interesting challenge. Yeah, and not to mention the drought that preceded the fires. So 
Yes, yes. So, yeah. but, but you know, all that they keep saying, oh, you know, COVID was a, is a once-in-a-hundred-year um, event. I don't actually believe that. I think that it will happen. I think this thing will be happen more in the future. So I think that this will probably be uh, something that we need to get geared up for and be able to to immobilise um, quickly again at some stage in the future. And that's just going to be the reality, I think. Yeah. And it will rewrite a lot of businesses. It will rewrite aged care. It will rewrite high-rise living. It will have a big impact on so many different areas. So one of the questions I like to ask is, what are the challenges of being a NED? And you sound like you've had a fair few. Um, But aside, disasters aside, assuming that regular day-to-day business, what are some of the challenges that you face as a NED? Well, obviously, the, the obvious challenges is being able to stay abreast of everything that's going on within the business so you are only getting a helicopter view so one of the challenges that is that management is being open and transparent and working with the board so that's always a concern and I I work pretty hard to make sure that the the executive team that I work with in each of the boards I have good rapport with them because I think that they're more likely to put their hand up and disclose something if they feel like it's they're in a safe space so that building that trust with the executive is probably the biggest challenge I think a lot of um a lot of executive often see the board as the enemy if you like and that they're there to sort of try and catch them out and so I think that that's really important to try and remove that barrier to to make sure that we're all in this together um, as the COVID um, message has been um, you know we're all in this together so I think that that's probably the biggest challenge and one of the other challenges that I found too was actually not being down in the detail and making sure that you do stay up the helicopter level but at the same time um having being able to actually know enough of the detail to be able to make informed decisions so that that's always been um one of the challenges that i've found yeah that balance is really difficult isn't it you have to have enough of the operational side to make the strategic decisions but it's hard to get that operational insight without getting a little bit too involved in what's going on down there um you said there about the trust the the executive team being concerned that the board's trying to catch them out and you've got to have trust and rapport there. But do you also find as well that executives have a a natural tendency to want to impress the board and maybe paint a better picture of things? Of course. Yeah. And it's a very natural thing, isn't it, to always want to be getting the gold star for your board paper that you've put up or what have you. So nobody really wants to put their hand up and say, you know, this I've done this wrong or you know my team's let me down in this area or what have you but the reality is things are going to happen nothing ever goes always to plan so if you're not getting some bad news as a director then I think that you're really not asking the right questions or you haven't built that trust because yeah. life is like that you need to, you need to have the warts and all to be able to make those those good governance decisions and I think that um I think that's that's your job as a director is to tease out those issues. And I think if people feel like you're not going to crucify them and that you are a safe pair of hands, they will offer up that information. Yeah, because one of the complexities as well is that 
they, the, the executives reporting the bad news to you, could be undermining the CEO in doing so. I mean, they report to that CEO on a day-to-day -day basis. Correct. If the CEO is not bringing the problem to you, they're really exposing themselves by doing that, aren't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, but again, the CEO then therefore is also responsible for building that rapport with their executive as well. And yeah. that they should be seen as a team coming to the board as a team. And so they shouldn't feel like they're the whistleblower, so to speak. But at the same time, they should feel like they've got, you know, a safe haven to go to if there are things that need to be, you know, have the whistle blown on. Yeah, and we've made some good strides in whistleblowing policies in recent times as well. Sure. So there's a lot more encouragement for executives to bypass any uh, manager that might not be letting that news get yes. through. Let's talk about your personal journey. So let's go back to when this all started. You, you had this bright idea that board work was for you. How did you go? How did you start off? What was your experience? Well, in some respects, I, I started sitting on boards probably as early as 2000, 2002, because, and not generally not-for-profits, and I wanted to do that in a voluntary sense to get some experience, so to be able to dip my toe in the water and see whether or not this was something that I wanted to do. And then by 2016, I sort of really thought I really did want to go into um, board work after my CEO role. I'd been at the, the law firm for over 20 years at that stage and you can't stay at the CEO of a, a law firm forever. I mean, you need to, to step aside, let the next lot of, um, you know, young, fresh blood thinking come through. So I then thought to myself, okay, I'm going to take on a board role. So I got my first paid role in 2016 and continued to do my CEO role for a period of time. And it was really in 2018 that I decided that I would really bite the bullet and actually make a, a conscious decision to build um, a board portfolio. And it was interesting because initially, so I retired from the law firm in the December and sort of by mid-January or even to late January of 2019, I thought I'd, I'd made a big mistake because I thought to myself, how am I ever going to get a portfolio of um, board positions? This is just impossible. And they actually just, doors just started to open at that point in time and I just started getting one after another. And um, I've, so I've been very fortunate. And a lot of the coffees and networking um, functions and things I'd go to in those early few months, I would go and think, oh, she's so lucky. She's got five boards and, God, I wish I could be her or him or whatever the case may be. And before I know it, uh, you know, I, I've sort of got my own portfolio going pretty well. And, and it wasn't, it probably only took about seven months. But having said that, there were some rejections along the way, which is a little um, little confronting when you've been yeah. sort of steering your own ship for as long as I have and being a you know capital partner in a law firm and making all of the, the decisions and controlling your own destiny, going for those interviews and putting applications up and the thanks but no thanks um, letter comes back or you go to an interview and you don't get any further, uh, you know, it is, um, it can be quite confronting. 
Now that's interesting because often that's where my clients are when we start our journey together. So when I first get my clients, they're in that space where they've had an amazing executive career to hang their hat on. They have these board aspirations and they've been knocked around a bit. They've had a few rejections. They don't feel like they're getting anywhere. And it it's quite a disappointing space to find yourself in. Did you ever feel like maybe you couldn't do it? Did you ever feel like giving up? Uh, I, I don't think I felt like I, I don't think I ever felt like I would give up because I'm the type of person that I don't like to be told no. I'm, so if I want to do something, I tend to find myself like really doing it um, to my absolute best capacity. But I thought at one point I might have to actually go and get a um, consulting role or take a an, another position somewhere to supplement the board because I didn't think that I was going to have a portfolio large enough to occupy my time. So, um, and I had to, so I did have to question whether or not I went about the strategy that I'd gone um, about was perhaps not the best strategy. Perhaps I should have collected, you know, another one along my way before I'd actually gone in boots and all. So, so those first couple of months, despite the fact that you're doing lots of networking and having lots of discussions with people, you do feel quite lonely and think, you know, is this ever going to happen for me? Uh, but now I feel very fortunate. But I have to say, getting yourself a mentor and getting somebody that's actually selling you, so to speak, on your behalf is, you know, a great way to go. And I've had a very good um, mentor that has been, you know, very helpful in in promoting me uh if she's heard of somebody getting um somebody that's got a board role coming up she would put in a good word for me they perhaps contacted me and asked me to go for for the interview and so things like that I think that that's really important you really need somebody to be a champion for you very hard to just constantly be telling everybody how good you are and why they should give you the role yeah And there's a couple of things that come up there, Michelle, because first of all, the network really is the key, right? It's absolutely the absolute door opener in a board is the network. But networks take time to build and nurture. You know, you meet somebody today, have a coffee with them in two weeks time. It's going to take three or four coffees before you really get into know each other and working together. And I think some people find that they put out a lot of effort, a lot of coffees and a lot of catch-ups and a lot of networks, and it's not really manifesting for them. But you've got to allow a good six to 12 months for those networks to... Totally, totally. And I would have to say uh, that, that I probably, you know, the two people that have been probably most significant in developing my board career, I've known for in excess of three years. So... It's it you know it, I knew them when I was in my paid employment um, yeah. role. So it's not something you just can't meet somebody next week and think that they think that you've got credibility and they're just going to give you a job. Yeah, you need you need to have somebody that genuinely believes in you and knows that you've you're capable because they're putting their own reputation on the line by recommending you. Yeah, do you have any advice for how you get a mentor? Like how. If I'm going to, if, if I identify the dream mentor for me, somebody who's working in the fields that I'm very passionate about, 
he's like the grown-up version of me if you like how I want to be when I grow up have you got any advice for how you can approach that sort of person or how you get to know people like that I think that your mentor has to be somebody that you have a true connection with so don't there's got to be a bit of chemistry there so don't think don't find a mentor because what they can actually deliver for you actually go and find somebody that you genuinely respect that you have a connection with and it will just come I think is what's happened for me I I I didn't actively go and search for a mentor it's just that these two people uh, have been very good to me and given me career advice along the way and it just happens now that they've also been a great um, advocate for my um, board roles as well so I I I had a men I was already in a mentoring role with them way before I'd actually made this decision and I think that that's important I just think that you can't be just doing something because it's what you think you're going to get out of it you've got to it's got to be a two-way street yeah and that that's a good point too because I think the more the more board roles you get the more genuine relationships you build and the more willing mentors there are that can help you along your journey as well and that's where the snowball effect comes into play the other thing that you said going back there was that you didn't have enough board roles to fill your space. And I think you have to be very careful about how you protect that space when you are building a net portfolio because you don't want to fill it with noise and clutter. Correct. But you need to fill the time, yeah. don't you? Yes. So I think that, that um, you do need to have um, a plan or a strategy and say, um, um, sorry, my my um, video just went down. Then, um, okay. I I think you've got to have um, you've got to have a plan or a strategy because you can fill it up, as you said, with noise. You can jump at the very first thing that's offered to you without actually having any real thought. And I think that that's where it's particularly important to say, okay, I want to be known to be in this space. And I actually went and got um, a coach to help me come up with what my strategy was going to be. And that was really helpful as well, working out what sort of um, income I wanted to derive out of um, board roles. What, what did I want to be known for? Obviously, boards have a lot of um, portfolios with them and whether it's people and governance, risk, strategy, uh, you know, finance, there's there's a whole lot of different portfolios within a board and so you need to work out which one that you actually want to take on. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, one of the one of the boards that I'm on has a, um, a strategic and investment committee. Well, that's not my skill set. So I, I sit on the finance risk and audit, but I knew that I could bring that to the table because there was no one. Everybody sees themselves as this strategy and investment person and thinks that they know where the business should be going. But I was, I'm the really only person sitting on the board looking at the finance and the risk and the audit side of it. So, so it's working out what you've got to bring to the table. Yeah. That's really interesting that you worked with a coach because the things that we do with our clients is we 
help them define their dream roles. So to us, it's all about finding your purpose, your values and everything being in alignment so that you can add value to a board. Now you had a situation where your dream role appeared in front of you. Can you tell us about that? Um, I had a dream role. Well, the dream role, one of my hobbies is we have horses and I saw um, advertised, I think it was in the age or the Australian was um, racing Victoria had um, a board position and I thought I had my name written all over it. And so I put so much time and effort into my application. And I was so excited, thought to myself, this, this has just got to be a given for me. I didn't even get an interview. So right. <laughs> you have to, um, you, so, you know, that, that can be um, quite a setback to your, your ego, if you like, because I honestly, as I said, thought I had my name written all over it and it was a dream job. And obviously my resume wasn't what, they were looking for on my CV so uh, you have to you have to sort of think to yourself okay not this time I'll, I'll wait and I'll watch and hopefully um, sit and hopefully one of the other positions on that board will come up at some point in time and I'll put my hand up again yeah. uh, and it's often difficult too because you don't get any feedback as to why you didn't cut it it's just thanks but no thanks so um and i keep a i keep a register that's a really important thing to do is keep a register of the roles that you have applied for and perhaps write down um some notes as to why you might not have got um or how far you got and, and whether or not you um could get any insights from anybody um, as to why you didn't get any further. That can always be um, beneficial, but I do keep a register. So what's the purpose of the register? Obviously, you're tracking the roles that you didn't get. You're trying to get feedback on why, but does it help you in any other way? Uh, I suppose uh, to make sure, because, because people often too, boards are connected. So I think if you keep a register and you know who's on that, particular board um, you just might find that that person also is sitting on another board and so um, that can be just it's just it's creating um, a web if you like or a, yeah. that and I think that that's that can be important because you've got to work out you, you'll be amazed at the amount of people that you meet on this board that you'll find you end up sitting on another board with uh, and and that can be really important so you want to sort of make sure that okay I went for that position with ABC company these were the directors on there I didn't get it what other boards do they sit on and are there any other boards in their suite or their portfolio that I might be interested in so that you can actually try and work out how can I get some of those people to be advocates or champions for me. Yeah, that's brilliant advice. That's really, really clever. The, the whole having a professional NED career, having a NED portfolio is just littered with disappointment and rejection. You know, I'm, I, I'm hearing a lot how people don't get the roles that they applied for, how it takes longer than they think. I've even heard the term recently, it's cutthroat out there trying to get roles. But I think if you, if you approach it with a practical sense, and certainly that register is a really good practical, logical step for doing that, 
but it's a lot like a sales role. You know, if you work as a car salesman, not everyone's going to buy a car that comes in. But if you service the customers that come in and you know your product, then you will hit your sales targets. And I think this is the first time that I've realized that. But you actually need to approach this from a numbers space. You know, I need to be applying for X amount of roles. I need X amount of mentoring. I need these irons in these fires. And then things will eventuate. And when they do, that's when the success comes. You're having a lot of success on your board roles now. And you were telling me that you're really enjoying what you're doing and feeling like a lot more doors are opening up to you now. Yes, but at the same time, and I do, but this purple patch that I'm in right now might not last. So one of the challenges I see for for uh, non-executive directors is that they've got to be constantly working on their own career so for instance they've my the current appointments that I've got have got terms to them so at some point in time I need to start thinking okay well where am I going to replace that role with where, where where's the next role coming from so you do have to put time aside and be very conscious of the fact that you've got to manage your own career here and it's um it, you know that's difficult it's a bit like you know working on the business as well as in the business so you do need to make time and say okay well what are this might take these roles might take me out to 2022 to 2023 what's the 2023 through to 2025 roles going to look like where do I want to go so you really do need to put time aside for those sorts of things so that action planning you did with the coach wasn't just to get you going, but it's really that ongoing rolling action plan to keep those yes. roles coming in. Very yes. interesting. Um, can I ask you, Michelle, what advice would you give to anybody who's in that C-suite right now that is probably beyond the stage of going and working with local associations to get a bit of experience? If they're, they're actually looking at a sideways move now into board work what advice would you have for them uh well first of all make sure that um this is what you really want because once you step out of that c-suite it might not necessarily i mean obviously you can go back but you might if you're in a dream job don't think that um you know you might land that again so i think that you've got to be signing up to this for the long haul if you're going to walk away from a c-suite role uh hence the reason i wasn't going to throw the towel in uh it's not everything that it's cracked up to be as in it can be lonely you're not actually immersed into any given team uh you you always on the peripheral and i think that being a people's person that i am i found that somewhat challenging that you're actually never really part of one team and you've got to build rapport with lots of different teams so in my case there's three different um three different teams that I'm building relationships with ongoing relationships with so that that's a challenge to always be sitting on the peripheral um and I think that you again need to be thinking about what next all the time so that and you don't necessarily do a lot of that when you're in the C-suite. You you get you land you know your your dream job, and you work in it. And it might be you know three five years down the track that you might think, okay, what's next? But you 
I don't think you can afford to do that in a, in a NED role. You actually have to be thinking about it all the time and making, you know, rolling over, making sure that you're picking up one partway through a term as well and working out the question is how many can you handle at any one time? Um, I personally think that probably, you know, four or five is probably um, your maximum. But, I mean, uh, you know, some people have different capacities and some people might be able to do. I mean, I, I certainly had an experience where I knew somebody that was on like 12 boards at once. I mean, had an enormous diary and was able to get himself to all of those meetings. I just think that, you know, that's such a lot of board appointments. So I'm not, I don't think there is an ideal number. Uh, and the other thing that I, you know, I think that the challenge too is always thinking whether or not you can do it. And um, I think the first board position that you get, you always probably have a little bit of self-doubt and think it's really scary walking into that first board meeting. You don't know anybody and, you know, what happens if I ask a dumb question? I don't think there is such a thing as a dumb question and I think often you'll find that if you're not thinking it, if you're thinking it, probably other people in the room are thinking it. And so I worked out pretty quickly that um, I was, you know, relatively well qualified for, for this sort of work and so uh, I think, you know, you need to park yourself down and realise that you're actually probably, you know, as good if not better than what you actually thought you were. So, but that can be daunting, as I said, to walk into that first room and shake the hand of the chairman and meet a whole bunch of people. It, it, you, you know, you always think, oh, everybody else is going to be so much better at this than what you are. But if you know your staff, you know your staff, I think. All of those sorts of things, just keeping up your own education is really important. Yeah, and you, there's some really good advice there, but that after going through an incredibly difficult journey to land your first board role, after going through disappointment and rejection, and then finally being in that board role, it's only natural to question whether you actually do have the ability. Absolutely. To so yeah. Believing yourself. Yeah, it's not just a board role. I mean, anybody starting a new job feels like that. Uh, you know, we all have that little bit of self-doubts. You know, you have that negative Nelly sitting on your shoulder telling you you're not mm -hmm. good enough. Uh, but as I said, I think that, you'll probably be surprised at actually how good you really are once you start doing the work and you realise, and, and you've got to be prepared to do the work too. It's not, you know, it's not just about, you know, rocking into a boardroom and sitting there and asking a few questions. You really do need to learn the businesses, understand what they're doing, do the reading. Um, I think those days of thinking it was just a you know a cushy role where you turned up to a couple of meetings a month and got paid I think those days are long gone now I think you know financial crisis of um, the Royal Banking Commission and things like that certainly um, you know have scared enough directors around the the board tables to make sure that they're that we're all doing our job as to the best of our ability these days yeah Michelle, there's some really sound advice there. Thank you so much for sharing your insights today. It's been a pleasure hearing your story. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Insider Insights with Sally Parrish. Insider Insights is the place to meet non-executive directors and go inside their boardroom to learn from their experience. We hope you've discovered some great learnings today that you can apply to your board role. 
We look forward to your company on the next episode of Insider Insights. 